y'all turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we're continuing in this series about Jesus and unbelievers and, and talking about how he had these conversations with people that were lost, that didn't know him yet. And what can we learn from him? Obviously, nobody in this room is just like Jesus. We're on our way there if we're his followers. He's making us into that image, but I don't know about you, but I've got a long way to go. Even so, there are things that we see in his relationships with these people that we can replicate because his spirit lives in us too. Um, So if you're a, a boy and you're like 14 or under, you may have gotten really excited when you saw the title of today's sermon because it's Jesus the Transformer. Um, but I, I just, I don't want, I don't want to, you know, do a bait and switch. This is really not a message about how Jesus changes into a Corvette or into a semi truck or into a fighter jet or a fighting robot. You know, I, I can tell you this if he wanted to, he could do any of those things. We don't see him doing that in the Gospels, but if, hey, if that's what it took to save people's souls, he would. Um, The point of this message is that Jesus, what he does, his full-time occupation, what brings him the most joy is watching people change, is giving them the power to change, is transforming them from who they are into who they were created to be. That's what he does. That's his full-time occupation. And if you want evidence, look in the Bible. Do this one time. Read the book of Luke, because that's one of the stories of Jesus' life, and pay special attention to how the disciples, the, the 12 closest friends of Jesus, to how they act in the book of Luke. And then read Acts, because Acts is also written by Luke. It's the story of what happened to the disciples after Jesus died and rose again, and the Holy Spirit came into them. And it's like, these aren't the same people. They, they start off as guys who you wouldn't trust to babysit your kids. You wouldn't trust them to run a, a jack-in-the-box. But they turn into guys who turn the world upside down, who are so courageous, who are so eloquent, who are so bold that today we've named our, our sons after them. We've named our, our churches, our cities, our universities after them. What accounts for that kind of change? Jesus is the only common denominator between them. He's the one that changed them. And, and so... It means that if Jesus is alive in us, then we ought to be seeing those kinds of transformations happen. There ought to be people all around us who we say, is that the same guy? Because it looks like the same guy, but he doesn't act like he used to act. His whole bearing is different. Is that the same woman? Because I used to kind of avoid her, and now... And, And somewhere along the way, we lost that vision as Christian people. Somewhere along the way, we've stopped expecting transformation. John Ortberg's one of my favorite preachers. He tells a story about when he was a young man in, in one of his early churches. There was a guy whose name was Hank, and he remembers his name all these years later because Hank rhymes with crank, and Hank was a cranky guy. And, and not endearingly cranky. I've got friends, I've got relatives who are kind of endearingly cranky. They gripe and grumble, but they're really good inside. Hank was just mean. Hank was a guy, and here's the way Orberg puts it. He said he, he had the ministry of cranial downsizing. He thought it was his job, if somebody was getting a lot of kudos, it was his job to knock them down a peg. You know, I want to make sure your head doesn't get too big. If you sing a song and you sound really good, I'm going to tell you, well, you were off key one or two notes. You know, if, if you're winning a lot, you're bringing a lot of people to church, you know, I want to criticize you and say, well, if they really knew you, they wouldn't come. I mean, this was Hank. Hank's son was deeply in love with his wife. They'd been married a few years, and they had this very, very wonderful story about how they first met. 
And everyone in church knew the story of how Hank's son and his wife had met, except Hank. Hank didn't tell his son the story, or Hank, Hank's son didn't tell Hank the story because they had met at a dance, and Hank didn't believe in dancing. And he knew that if he told his dad the story, his dad wouldn't like his wife, so he kept it from him. This is the kind of guy we're talking about. And Ortberg says the sad thing isn't just that he was a cranky guy. The sad thing is that he was a member of a Christian church who went every Sunday, who studied the Bible, who tithed, who, who, who served, and no one ever thought it was unusual that he never changed. You know, no one ever, you know what should have happened? Some man his age should have gone up to him and said, hey, listen, you need to change. You're not acting like a believer in Christ. You need to get right. You're making everybody miserable. You're a jerk. In the name of the Lord, you're a jerk. Somebody should have, no one ever did that. We just, people just assume, oh, well, that's just Hank. And we can't settle for that as believers in Christ. This isn't really a sermon about holding one another accountable, but that's part of what it means to be a believer. What this is about is if Jesus is alive in us, we should be seeing transformation happen all around us. And I want to see those stories. I want to see the stories of families that are broken up, coming back together and patching things up and doing the hard work of staying together and building something lasting. I want to hear the stories of the people who are at the end of their rope. I mean, literally holding the gun that they're going to use to take their lives. And from there they go to, I'm so joyful and so full of purpose. I'm encouraging other people. I want to hear about, about neighborhoods and zip codes and cities that get so transformed that sociologists come and study it and go, we don't know how it happened. The economics didn't change. The crime rate, I mean, they're just, it's a different people. And those things happen in Scripture. And those things happen today in places like the Middle East and China and South America. But they aren't happening as often here as they once did. They still do happen. Stay awake because at the end of this sermon, you're going you're gonna to see a video of a story of a friend of mine, a member of this church, who, whose life God has recently changed, and you're going to enjoy that. But we need to see it happen all the time. That's what Jesus does. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the story of, guy, of a guy whose life was dramatically changed, a man who was born blind. Blindness, I'm sure, is no walk in the park today, but in the ancient world, it was especially debilitating. There was no Braille. You couldn't learn unless you sat and listened to someone else talk, but you couldn't read for yourself. You couldn't have a job. You couldn't get around. They hadn't discovered things like seeing-eyed dogs. They didn't have public transportation. This guy was at the mercy of his relatives or the kindness of strangers. And worst of all, as we're going to see, the theology that a lot of people in that time had said that, well, you're blind and it's probably your fault. And Jesus comes and heals this man. I don't think that's a spoiler. We probably understood that was going to happen. But I want you to notice in this story, we're going to look at this man through the, through the lens of three different groups of religious people. I want you to notice how they saw this man, and then at the end, we're going to look at how Jesus saw him. And I want you to ask yourself, when I look at people who deeply need change, do I look at them the way these three groups did or the way Jesus did? All right? So let's start with verse 1. This first group we're going to look at are the disciples of Jesus, his closest friends. It says, as he went along. He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now remember, I said, before Jesus dies and rises again and the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples can't get anything right. They're sincere, they're doing their best, but they are spiritually just off the reservation. They are not 
on par with God. They're not on track with him. And here's an example. They've got it in their minds because they know Exodus 34-7 that if something bad happens to you, it's because you did something bad or your father did something bad. Exodus 34-7 says, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Now, we know that God has mercy on all sinners. And so what does that verse mean? I believe what it means is that there is such a thing as generational sin. That if I'm an alcoholic, or if I'm a philanderer, or if I'm abusive, or if I'm a liar, then my kids are going to pick that up from me. And they're going to carry it on into their families. And their kids are going to suffer as a result. God doesn't do that to us, but it's... It's, our, it's a warning from God saying, take care of your sins now, otherwise it will replicate itself in days to come. But the disciples and most of the people of their era had understood that truth in a very different way. They thought it meant you can, you can diagnose someone's spiritual condition by how their circumstances are. If they're wealthy, if they're healthy, if their family looks good, then obviously they're living right. Remember that story of when Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven, and the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? Because in their minds, God must love the rich people most of all because he made them rich. Jesus answers them in two different ways. Let's look at, at verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. So the first thing he says is, you've got your theology mixed up. It's not, you can't tell based on someone's life whether they're living right or not. Suffering happens. We live in a sin-stained world, and so everyone experiences suffering, and even the person you look at and say, well, they must have it really good. They're suffering. They're struggling in ways you can't possibly know. So Jesus says, neither one. You don't understand. But then he goes on. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what Jesus says is, you're looking at this man's affliction as if it's a curse from God. I want you to see it as an opportunity for God to do great things. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. My job is to bring light into dark places. And you're supposed to be part of that, remember? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Remember the illustration we told about the little town in Austria that's in the shadow of a mountain, and, and that mountain uh, keeps the town in darkness uh, a third of the year, and, and uh, there was a company that wanted to take the sunlight and put mirrors on, on, on the mountain and, and reflect that sunlight into the valley, and I talked about how weird the mirrors. Our job is to reflect that light. So Jesus would say, Jesus would say, don't diagnose someone else's problem. Don't look at a, a woman whose husband just left her and say, well, that's because she was just, she was kind of a shrew. I mean, she's always criticizing him. I, I think I would have left too. No, why not be her friend? You don't know the truth about the situation, number one. Number two, she needs a friend, not a critic. You know a guy who can't seem to hold a job instead of sitting back and saying, well, you know, that's because he's lazy. You don't know that. And even if you're right, he needs someone to show him the love of Christ. Get off the bench and into the game and stop diagnosing people spiritually and start loving them in the direction they need to go. Do you all know something? Last week, uh, we showed a video of me doing a demonstration of the gospel called The Three Circles. Uh, if you were here last week, you remember that. Uh, if you weren't here, you can go back and find it on, on our website. You can just go to YouTube and look up Three Circles, and there's... A, Quick three-minute demonstration of the gospel. James Brown posted that 
online. And as of Friday, it had, had, it had been shared 38 times on social media, and it had been viewed 1,300 times, which I think is pretty exciting. But you know what would be even more exciting? If someone took that demonstration and actually sat down with a friend and said, let me, let me draw this out for you. Because I bet you you've got friends who don't know Christ and they think that what Christianity is, is you go to church a lot and you do your best to follow the commandments and maybe, maybe when you die, you get in. But if you can show them, no, 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 it's not about that at all. It's about Jesus coming into our brokenness and making us whole. Be the light. They need to know it. Okay, group two, the neighbors of this man come along. This is after Jesus has healed him. Verse eight, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Now, the neighbors are interesting because it seems they have sort of a conservative view. And by conservative, I mean they want things to stay the same. They are not quick to accept the fact that this man has changed. They, they aren't comfortable with the idea that he could be someone totally different. And you might think, well, shouldn't they be excited about it? Yes, they should. You know what? Even this man's parents have a very conflicted view of the change in him. Later on, we're not going to read this part, but they go up to his parents and they say, is this really your son? And they say, yeah, it's our son, but we don't know how, we don't know how he was healed. Don't ask us. Ask him, because they know it could get him in trouble. They're not comfortable with the change in their son. You know, it's an interesting thing I've observed about myself and about other people. We like to categorize people. We like to put them in little categories, put them in little boxes so we can kind of understand them. We can define them. It starts when a person's born. When a person is born, what do we say? We look into that crib and we say, oh, he looks just like his daddy, which is baloney. I mean, ladies, I'm sorry, but if you take two pictures of newborn children, they look exactly alike. When they're first born, and then when they get older and they put on a little weight and they get that chubby little look, they don't look like their daddy. They look like Winston Churchill, all right? So stop trying to make them into their father or their mother because they're not. And it gets worse as they get older because we, as their parents, we define them. We decide, okay, this is my smart child. She makes all A's. Well, you know, you don't probably shouldn't talk to her because she's really shy. He's, he's my tough kid. He's always climbing trees. He fell out of a tree the other day, didn't even cry. You know, he's, he's a hot-tempered one. You better not, you better not provoke him because he'll just lose it on you. And we say those things from an early age. We define them. And I know adults who to this day are trying to prove their parents wrong, who are like, Mom, I, I wish you'd understand. I'm smart too. I know you said my brother's the smart one, but I... I maybe, maybe I didn't make as good a grades in algebra as he did, but, but I'm smart in other ways. Mom, I wish you hadn't told everybody I was so shy because all my life I just grew up thinking I'd never have any friends because I'm shy. I, it turns out I'm, I'm pretty good around people. Why do we do that? I had a friend in another town who accepted Christ as his Savior, and he'd always been kind of the black sheep of the family, never really did anything right. And he got baptized, and I mean, Christ was really alive in him. And I was so excited about my friend's salvation. I bumped into one of his relatives that next week in town, and I said, hey, isn't it exciting what happened to him? And, and this was her exact word. She said, yeah, we'll see how long it lasts. And that just took my breath away. I, I didn't even know what to say to it. I thought, 
how can you be so cold about such an exciting change? And maybe, maybe in her defense, maybe she was saying, I hate to get my hopes up because I'll only have my heart broken. But I got the feeling deep down inside, she was more comfortable with seeing him as the screw up in the family. He was the one who we could all kind of criticize because he couldn't do the right thing. And when the rest of us are all buttoned down, he's the one who is always in trouble. Well, I'm not comfortable with him all of a sudden being more godly than me. Because I go to church, but I'm not all excited about Jesus like he is. Well, I, I, I don't know if I can handle that. And what I'm saying to you, friends, is we as God's people can't be that way. And I'm not just talking about our family. I'm saying when you see someone whose life has changed, you need to get excited about it. I've heard people uh, you know, question, why, are we, why do we yell and scream and clap so loud when people get baptized? Well, we should. Goodness gracious, if we clap for a touchdown, how much more exciting is it that someone's saying, Christ has changed me? We should be excited about the change in people's lives. Group number three is the Pharisees, and we see them in verse 13. Now, the reason the Pharisees get involved is they are the religious authorities. They're not clergy. They're lay people, but they're known. I mean, if you're a Pharisee in the first century, what you are is a, a man who has said, essentially, if you want to know what it means to obey the Torah and to follow Yahweh faithfully, look at my life. They have put a bullseye on their own selves and said, I am the walking, talking emblem of Judaism. So when this man gets healed and they're starting to ask, well, how did this happen? What do we do? It, it happened on a Sabbath day. Is that right? They go to the Pharisees. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had, been made, had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. He put, mud on his eye, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Quick question, where in the Bible does it say you can't heal someone on the Sabbath day? Does anybody know? Chapter and verse, even the book? No, it's not in the Bible. It's not in there at all. The Pharisees had made that up. Now, we as God's people today would never make up our own little rules that aren't actually in Scripture, but just make us feel better about who's in and out of the club. Would we? Would we? We wouldn't say, hey, um, I'm holier because I wear nicer clothes to church than that other person. We wouldn't say things like that, would we? Yeah. Let's go on. Verse 35. Jesus heard, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, verse 24. Thank you. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This guy doesn't know theology. He just knows what Jesus had done for him. And folks, that is enough. That's all you need to lead someone to Christ. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Do you detect a note of sarcasm? You think maybe this guy's a little bit, uh, has, has the gift of a quick wit and he's using it? Pharisees don't appreciate his spiritual gift. Um, he says, in, they say in verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. 
We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And when it says they threw him out, it means they threw him out of the synagogue. Let me tell you how big that is. If, if you did something so bad, we had to ask you to stop coming to our church, that would be bad. But there's a whole lot of other churches you could go to. Or even if you never went to church again, people in the community would still respect you. They'd still treat you the same. In Jewish society, if you got kicked out of the synagogue, no one had anything to do with you. You were persona non grata. The only people who would associate with you were other people who weren't welcome in the synagogue, which, by the way, were the people who seemed most drawn to Jesus, but that's another sermon. You might say, okay, that's the Pharisees. We as God's people, a Christian church today, we would never hear that somebody was coming to Christ and get upset about it. We would never throw someone out because they didn't fit our categories, would we? Would we? I have a friend um, who's a pastor in another town. and Years ago, he was pastor of one of those kinds of churches that most pastors would give their right arm to be a part of. You know, large church, well-resourced, community leader type people who went there. There was a prison in that particular city, and so he got involved in prison ministry. It wasn't something the church had ever been involved in. At first, they were kind of supportive. Oh, this is cute. This is good. But then a lot of inmates came to know Christ through this ministry, and, and even correctional officers within the prison came to know Christ. And eventually the church leaders came to this man and they said, listen, you've, you're spending too much time in that prison. We've called you to be pastor of this church. And he's, he said, well, what am I not doing that I should be doing? And he said, it's not that. We just know that you're spending a lot of time there, and that's not we, what we pay you to do. So you have to choose. So he was like, I've got to choose between living up to your expectations because you pay my salary, or going where God is actually redeeming people, well, he chose to stick with God. He left the church. He started his own ministry from scratch. Now his church is mostly ex-cons and correctional officers and people associated with the, 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 uh, with the jail and the people they've won to Christ. And he's never been happier. Yeah, it can happen. It can happen where a church can be so blinded to what God is doing that we'll care more about programs than we do about people. Let that not happen here, friends. That would be a tragedy. So those are the three groups. Now, how did Jesus treat this man? Let's look back at the story of his healing. Verse 6, having said this, this comes right after Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Ick, right? Um, Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I have to tell you, this is the only time Jesus ever used magic spit to heal somebody, okay? You You can't find that anywhere else in the scripture. This is the only time we know of. And there's not really an explanation for why he didn't just put his hands on the guy or even just point to him and say, be healed. My guess, and it is purely a guess, 
is he was giving this man an opportunity to exercise faith. The guy actually had to go and watch. He had to obey Jesus in order to receive healing because Jesus' goal wasn't just to heal the man's eyes. If he just healed the man's eyes and walked away, it would have been a miracle, but that guy just would have been separated from God forever with two eyes that worked. That, in the grand scheme of things, is not much better. So let's go on to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. And that is the beginning. That is the beginning of a new life for this man. His new life didn't begin when he could see. His new life began when he believed and worshipped Jesus. And because of that, you and I get to meet this guy someday. If you're a follower of Jesus, we'll get to know him. John didn't even tell us his name. We'll find out his name. We'll get to... He sounds like he was pretty witty. It sounds like we'll enjoy spending time with this man. Think about the transformation that happened just because one man believed in Jesus, and that's what he does. Remember that song, Billy Joel? Don't go changing to try to please me. I love you just the way you are. Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He comes into your life and he changes you. And some of that change happens overnight and a lot of that change happens over time, but transformation happens. So I need to ask you three quick questions. Number one, do you believe in transformation? Do you believe in transformation and are you living that out? I hope the story of of Cranky Hank uh, sticks with you because I hope you'll look into your heart and say, is there anything about me that denies Jesus in the way that I live? On the other hand, is there some way you can say, okay, here's how Jesus has changed my life. More than just I stopped, uh, I stopped sleeping late on Sunday mornings, I actually started going to church. More than I stopped using certain language around people who are Christians. No, I'm a new person and here's how. I hope every person in this room, if I held a microphone in front of you, could say, here's how Jesus is working on me right now. Here's the sin, here's the bad habit that I know he is working to change in me right now. Do you believe in transformation? Number two, do you believe God can transform your neighbor? Don't be like the disciples and say, well, I I can figure out why you're experiencing the trouble you are. Let me tell you the problems in your life. Don't be like the neighbors who said, well, I've got you pegged. I know who you are. And people can't really change. Don't be like the Pharisees who, who were so in love with their own doctrine, their own theology. They just weren't interested in transformation. When you look at a neighbor, when you look at a friend... Pray for their transformation and pray, Lord, what can I do to be a part of that? And that that brings me to my third question. Do you believe God can transform our community? Do you believe God wants to and can transform this whole community in a way that people will be studying for years to come? October 6th, And November 3rd, you saw the video already with Kirk. We're going to get together for these two events, assess and advance and assess. We'll gather together and we'll talk about the history of this church. If you're a longtime member of this church, we need you there because you know more history than we do. 
If you're a new member, we need you there because we need your fresh perspective on what our church is like and what our strengths and weaknesses are. You're going to hear from interviews we've conducted with with community leaders, so you'll know what the needs of our community are. You're going to hear about the demographics of our church and our community. Assess is about us learning who we are and what we have to offer as a church body. We need everybody there. November 3rd, we come back for advance, and that's when we take all that information that we learned and and have kind of gestated for a month, and we're going to use that to choose three specific things we're going to do, three specific ways we as a church are going to cooperate together to reach out to our community in the name of Jesus and bring about transformation in His name. And I want you to be a part of that conversation. When the service is over, there's going to be a table out that door and to the right where you can sign up. We just need to know how many people to order lunch for. And I know, I know, trust me, I know it's hard to give up a Saturday. But I think helping us become a church that transforms lives is worth $40 and two days of your life. That's part of being part of the church family. For now, I want you to join me in praying something. In your, in your At First Guide, every week, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, uh, humor me and pretend that you notice this every week, but every week I write a suggested prayer for the week. Now, I grew up Baptist. Baptists don't have pre-printed prayers. That's an Episcopalian, Lutheran, Methodist thing, right? We believe in praying from the heart. But I also know that when a group of God's people pray the same thing together, there's power there. You know, the, those other denominations aren't wrong about everything, right? We're not right about everything. So the suggested prayer this week, take this home with you and pray this along with me. It goes like this, Jesus, I know you want to transform our community. You died to make it possible and you've planted our church for that exact purpose. Show me what I should be doing to work alongside you in that mission. And yeah, if you want to use your own words, that's fine. But let's pray together and see what God does. There's one more thing I want to do. I want to show you a quick video of of someone whose life has recently changed. I want you to see this, and I want you to think about how God wants to do this in the lives of everyone you know. How's it going? My name is Sean Weatherly. I'm a member at uh, First Baptist here in Conroe. This is how Jesus transformed my life. I grew up in the church, but never really had a relationship with Christ. So I got involved in partying and drugs pretty early, around the age of 14. Really started taking a downfall right after uh, graduating high school. Um, I got pretty heavy into drugs and alcohol. I went to rehab my first time at 19. I got out and kind of misused the information I received and all the training. Um, Got back into drugs and alcohol. I was incarcerated. I did sell drugs for a long time. Selling drugs is actually what got me on drugs. Yeah, I was there one night drinking pretty heavily uh, by myself, and it wasn't the alcohol. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, wasn't really having any effect on me. And I was just bawling my eyes out because of depression, and I just didn't know what I was doing with my life. And uh, I think he spoke very loud and clear. He said, put down the bottle. Next morning, I threw all my alcohol away, and within 30 minutes, I had a brand new job. Long story short, I got sober uh, around April 23rd, 2017. 
my brother invites me to a Bible study at Jeff's house. So I go. And I kind of liked what was going on. I was, I was sober, but I wasn't fully committed myself to Christ yet. So after time spending with my brother and Jeff and uh, my whole community, it was kind of like a snowball effect to where I felt convictions of Christ more and more often. I wanted to better myself. I found myself loving Christ more. Grace is a big thing for me. Even though I don't deserve it, I still received it. And uh, I always want to give back to Christ whatever I can. I felt the Lord really calling me. He told me to get baptized. So I called Jeff and I said, we need to do this thing. We need to do it quick. And the biggest transformation for me is I found myself actually loving people and choosing to love people. Having a relationship with Christ is the best decision that you could possibly make because not only will he transform your life, I think that he transforms your heart and he takes certain desires away and puts new ones in that are more holy and godly. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would probably, I should either be dead or in prison right now. Absolutely believe that. I, I can tell you that uh, getting to know Sean and watching God work in his life has been one of the most encouraging things I've ever experienced. And I just think God wants to do that to so many people. God wants to see that happen in so many people's lives. And I can tell you that when you're part of that process, if you watch that happen in someone's life, it's the most amazing thing. It, you'll you'll want to do it over and over again. So my encouragement to you is pray along with me that God would make us a church where those things happen, those lives, we see lives change on a regular basis because the Lord knows there's enough people around here that need transformation, that us and all the other churches have got plenty of people to help. If you'll join me in that prayer, let's just see what God can do.